You're listening to the Comparative Media Studies Colloquium Podcast, a production of the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. Episodes are available on the iTunes Store, but we invite you to see us in person here in Cambridge. So get updates about upcoming events, each featuring top media speakers from MIT and around the globe, by joining the growing Comparative Media Studies community on Twitter, Facebook, and our website at cms.mit.edu. Hi, thanks for coming. I'm Nick Monford, and I host the Purple Blurb series here at MIT. In his book, The Iron Whim, Darren Wurschler explains that to check the alignment of typewriters after they rolled off the assembly line, it was conventional to type not the quick brown fox or these are the times that try, but rather a different sentence, Amaranth Saseyusos Oranco Initiation Secedes Uruguay, Philadelphia. A curious initiation, indeed, for these writing machines. If this historical tidbit is correct, and it is attested to in manuals for the repair and alignment of these devices, it means that over the past century and a half, most typewriters have been first used to strikingly misspell Amaranth Borsik's first name. (laughs) Amaranth Borsik earned her PhD in literature and creative writing from the University of Southern California, Her dissertation was on the use of writing technologies, such as the typewriter, by modern and contemporary poets to change their relationship to the page and their construction of authorship. In Los Angeles, she was a founder of the reading series The Loudest Voice and co-edited the anthology The Loudest Voice, Volume 1, which was developed from that series. She also co-founded and serves as an editor of the Goldline Press, is a translator of Ulipo poet Paul Brafour, and as a poet has written two books, Tonal Saw, published by the Song Cave in 2010, and Excess Exhibit, forthcoming from ZG Press. You will hear today about another fascinating book of hers, which combines augmented reality with letterpress work. We're very grateful to have Amaranth Borsak here as Mellon Postdoctoral Fellow in Writing and Humanistic Studies and Comparative Media Studies, and I'm glad to introduce her to you in this joint program of the Purple Blurb series and the CMS Colloquium series. Thank you, Nick, and thanks to everyone for coming this afternoon. I greatly appreciate it, and I'm uh, honored to have this opportunity to share my work with you. My goal for today's talk was to place my creative practice and uh, recent work in the context of my scholarly interest in, as you can see from the title, material poetics or textual materiality. Basically, since I'm trained as both a poet and a scholar, I have a dual PhD, I'm always looking for a correlation between these two sides of what I do. And periodically, I go back and reassess what, uh, what I've done in the past, how does it relate to what I'm doing now, and where might it take me. So the goal here is to potentially take us on a trajectory toward between page and screen. Not a teleology, but a trajectory. Uh, my scholarly work on material poetics is essentially attentive to the way that material qualities of a text inflect our reading and understanding of it. So in terms of my scholarship, that encompasses both close reading of poems for their prosodic elements by which they achieve their effects, and a close reading of media themselves as non-transparent interfaces that inflect our understanding of a text. The uh, two main influences on my thought in that direction are Joanna Drucker and uh, and Catherine Hale, as you see these quotes from her, both of whom have written extensively on both print media and digital poetics. As uh, someone who has a background in book arts and letterpress printing, I am very much invested in and interested in the printed page and artists' books. Um, My study of uh, material poetics also inflects my practice as a poet in terms of a range of practices that include erasures, altered books, constraint-based writing, translation, collaboration, and digital media. I show these quotes from Hales primarily to draw your attention to the middle one, where she says, literature was never only words, never merely immaterial verbal constructions. Literary texts like us have bodies. And 
actuality necessitating that their materialities and meanings are deeply interwoven into each other. And her goal in the book from which this comes, Writing Machines, is to stake a claim for digital media as non-transparent, but actually having a close relationship between the material uh, form that they take and the content that they're trying to disseminate. I think that as we enter a time of screen-based reading and differential texts, to use Marjorie Perloff's term, texts that appear in more than one form at any given time, such that we can't know which is the originary or which is the key text. They're all sort of part and parcel of the same text. As we get books that can appear on our iPhones, our Kindles, our laptops, and any number of portable devices, I think that we become more attentive to this, the importance of the material interface with which we are interacting with the books. Because of course, in addition to all these digital devices, they still exist on our bookshelves, right? We still have our copies of Moby Dick. So what is different about Moby Dick when we read it, say, on the iPad or on our phones in little fragments? I'd like to begin with uh, a poem that begins my first manuscript, Pomegranate Eater. It serves as an epigraph to the book. And it shares its title with this painting by the visual artist Julie Heffernan. Ravenous in pelts of prior selves, I step out of my vestments into ravishment. I lay table for my own commensal multitudes. Full length when most aware, armed in offering or pleasure, I could spiral at any moment, shift my fruited baldekin skirt. My guests as much my hostages, my home as much hospice as grove, this is my favorite role, I'll be their server. They come to be nearer the river, its alliterative languor, call me brookweed, cripple, ghost. They approach to hear what's sibilant in my libent crops. By what prodigal pedigree was I rendered so adorned? It began with a rupture, mistaken for a late descending testis. I turned color from citron to thistle, my skin regimental, never uniform. I brooded, forced to live under a bed, and there I billowed, never learned to contain my mutation. I grew hinge dark, knew rapture as the taste of broken skin. Lean in, I'm not contagious, just hospitable. It's bright here and everything grows. We're lit from within by systems of exchange. The feast of ingathering is laid. What we love is not the rose, but the smell of its decay. I bring up this poem at the outset in order to suggest that materiality is not just a factor in innovative or experimental poetics, nor is it simply a factor in digital poetics, but in fact materiality is central to the art of poetry, a close attentiveness to the qualities of language itself. And this poem from my first manuscript uh, deals with etymology, with homophones, with puns, with language play, with the space where the sibilant and the libent converge. So it's a, it's a poem in which a focus on the material qualities of language creates a speaker who both is inviting the reader into the text and keeping them at a distance, much like Heffernan's uh, self-portrait, which actually that is uh, somewhat what she looks like, although there's a real gray area in what she's terming a self-portrait, in much the same way that this portrait in her contrapposto stance could at any moment turn away from us and turn into something else. She's in the process of transformation, and this kind of focus on the sonic quality of words, the interrelationship between them and our associations with them sort of points us in the direction of a text that could at any moment mutate or transform into something else. So my interest in textual materiality, as I've said, has taken a number of forms uh, across my different practices. Nick mentioned my first chapbook, Tonal Saw, which was published by the Song Cave. This book um, is interested in a kind of opening up of the text that emerges from uh, language poetry practices, which uh, clearly inflected what I do. Um, it takes as its source of inspiration this religious tract, National Sunday Law, which was left on my doorstep 10 years ago and which I simply can't keep my hands off of. Um, 
So in the tradition of erasure and altered text works by artists like Tom Phillips and Ronald Johnson, who uh, both took source text and mined through them to create these new emergent texts, I was drawn to um, National Sunday Law to, to see what were the emergent languages within it. So uh, uh, Ronald Johnson took a copy of Milton's Paradise Lost and from it created radios. And Tom Phillips bought W.H. Malick's Victorian triple-decker but reprinted in a, in a single volume uh, in the uh, late 1800s and created a humument, or a hu it comes from a human document. So my text, Tonal Saw, emerges from National Sunday Law. Each poem in the book arises from a single page of the text, and I set myself the constraint to only move forward. So each of these poems, which this shows you how they appear in the chapbook, the words follow consecutively within the page, but the vertical pipes mark points of rupture where I move forward within the text, where I move elsewhere, essentially. By treating the page as a field of language, the materiality of words as signs detached from signification, a malleable material themselves to be recombined, comes to the foreground. And in the process of cutting through this text over a number of years, the thread that emerged for me was a kind of religion of poetry and a celebration of language itself. Uh, it's, in a sense, no wonder that in accessing the kind of uh, religious fervor of the text, a new kind of religion would emerge. So I'll read just a few pages from it to give you a sense of the voice uh, that emerged in the writing. <clears throat> Tonal saw. Tremble fire, a kind of fire like running cloud. It sprang up like a plant from the ground. Oh, 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 stumble headlong toward the precipice, toward the every echo. I want to speak the feeling electric, drive on to preach the vital turning. The feeling is spreading. Anything, anything, we can change hooves we should to ship or men to improve, oh, wonder, and help the beast. Explain the name, its own definition. How the stone, being a man, said, I just try to catch hearts, which is easier. He had read the writing, the writing, the writing that was written, and found it wanting. Desperation, a robe of purple, the dream had conquered this young Alexander. Power out, little horn, plucked up like the eye against the dividing of time. The same power for 1260 years. Fantastic, I tell you. Scarlet. Intricate city, accounted of flames. You are everywhere inside what happens. Torn apart, euphoric as human torches. Everyone something, a promise to make this. A horrible thought to make Eve drunk on books, believing conscience and little children the greatest possible human endurance. A tossed flood seemed offering answer, a heavy-laden promise, no more painful journeys. Strange scripture, those who heard were seen no more. Walden, a bit of earth they would worship. Winds coming loose and smoke and other talking. When the seeing between is reading is waiting to receive them, it's human, stupendous where you stand now, parts of the whole. I'll, I'll leave it at that. It's a, it's a poem in 30 parts, so it, it goes on and continues to explore this language that celebrates language and uh, the notion of a kind of religion of Walden and poetry and the difference that is spreading. 
my, uh, my influences ended up emerging from the text. I think we, as uh, writers, tend to see the things that we want to see in the work that we interpret. And every act of writing through, in a sense, is also an act of reading that demonstrates the poet's experience with the source text and the kind of dialogue that gets created between them. Gregory Betts has referred to this kind of writing as plunder verse. And for him, it's a kind of writing that uh, grapples with the anxiety of influence. In my case, I'm lucky here that uh, this text did not, uh, I did not have any baggage or association with it, and perhaps that is part of the reason that I continue to be drawn to it. So to continue the thread of materiality, I uh, wanted to briefly touch on a recent collaborative translation project that I have done together with Gabriella Hauregi, translating Paul Braffort, who is one of the a uh, few remaining founders of the ULIPO, the French Ouvoir de Littérature Potentielle, the workshop of potential literature. Um, his book, Mes Hypertropes, My Hypertropes, 21 minus one programmed poems. Um, materiality in the case of this work is, uh, or comes about as a focus on not only the qualities of the text, which like most ULIPO work is filled with homophones and puns and references to other works, but a, a close grappling with the difficulties of translation. It's always hard to render any other text into English. It became extremely hard for us to render a text like this one, which is filled with uh, homophones and puns that are actually in other languages because Paul is so polyglot. He actually will pun using French words to make Italian words, um, making English words. There's so much happening within the text. It became a text that exceeded our ability to translate it. As you can see from this middle diagram, this is the structure, uh, as crazy as that may look, for the book. So 21 minus one programmed poems is a book of 20 poems that pays homage to the members of Ulipo in the year in which he wrote it. Um, so I, I guess I should have, have mentioned that the group was founded in France in 1960 by Raymond Queneau and François Lyonnais, and that the group consisted of mathematicians and scientists who were interested in applying constraints to writing and coming up with constraints that would provide them with new ways of writing. In this work, Braffort endeavored to dedicate each poem to a member of the group, and in doing so, he uses their constraints within each poem, and he makes reference to their works. So, by reading this book, you actually get a pretty good primer of Ulipo and the various constraints that its members adopted. In addition to doing that, as if that weren't enough, there's a constraint governing the whole book, which is what is illustrated in that second image. The constraint is Zeckendorf's mathematical theorem that any number can be expressed as the sum of two or more Fibonacci numbers. So in the series of numbered poems, those poems that correspond with the Fibonacci series program the content of the other poems that they can add up to create. So for example, the 20th poem contains words and phrases that appeared in poems 13, 5, and 2. So how do you go about translating something like that? It was, a, it was an incredible endeavor. It really helped to have a collaborator in the process. The way that we this is a, an image of Paul in front of his apartment in Paris, and that's me with Gabriella, my collaborator. The way that we decided to approach the text was to create a third translation, or a third text, a second translation, which runs alongside and in parallel with the original and the translation. We call this third text the transversion. And in many cases, it subverts, transects, intersects with, and explicates the things that we couldn't and wanted to explain about the original poem. Um, it's certainly not the perfect method of translation. And it, what it does is it builds on the idea of, of uh, total translation that Pierre Jory um, and Jerome Rothenberg uh, have been sort of the pioneers of. But of course, there are many ways one could approach trying to work in all of this material. This was our, um, our approach. and. Um, since Gabriella's not here, I don't really feel right reading from the text, but I will say that there is a selection of it uh, in the last issue of Drunken Boat, and you can hear a recording of us reading where she reads the French, I read the English translation, and then we alternate stanzas reading the uh, transversion for this poem all the way on the right, which is L'Europe après la pluie, Europe after the rain. Um, 
and uh, the transversion is America after the rain. Oh, and each transversion is dedicated to a writer, musician, or visual artist who has been an influence on us and tries to draw on that person's work. So this uh, transversion is dedicated to Sister Nancy. So my most uh, recent manuscript, Handiwork, is what I was working on this fall and I'm very excited to have completed. It extends my interest in textual materiality and in constraint-based writing by applying a materialist lens to um, very personal material. Essentially, what I found is that using constraint-based writing and using um, these kind of materialist approaches actually allows me to get closer to material relating to my grandmother. These are two images of her. The one on the left was taken uh, just after World War II when she was living in Germany. Um, and the image on the right is after she moved to the US and uh, was beginning her career as a singer. The book Handiwork interweaves several strands in order to explore the role of the poet with respect to history, driven to write, but completely aware of my own situated perspective. As an extension of that concern, I'm trying to probe the relationship between writing and torture, to consider the ways poetry can wound us and the ways it wrestles with language itself. The root of the word text comes to us from tissue. To the, it connects us to the body, and if we think of language as a malleable material, then what can we say about the liberties that writers take with words? Informed as much by language poetry as by Adorno's injunction against poetry after Auschwitz and Ceylon's acknowledgement that the language of such poetry is itself marked by the horrors of war, I see my project as a dance of empathy that is necessitated by a kind of inherited history. So in handiwork, I am working with texts that my grandmother wrote about how she survived the Holocaust. She wrote these after she came to the US. Um, and for her, uh, it was both a chance for her to explore writing, because she's an avid reader, but also a somewhat cathartic exercise. And these are stories that have been repeated to me again and again over the years, so much so that they've really become part of my own psyche and my own sense of personal history. Um, so. In order to access some of this material, I rely on a number of different procedures, including um, a constraint using the cross-cultural history and etymology of the importance of salt as a mineral. Um, so there are these crystalline short poems that uh, use numerological constraints scattered throughout the poem. And uh, there's also a series of lyric poems in which the, my voice and my grandmother's voice somewhat blend in order to position myself not just as a figure outside of history, passing judgment on it, but rather to place myself within the matrix of these experiences which have actually been so formative for me despite the fact that I didn't experience them. In addition, there's a series of poems about torture that take the writer's hand as an allegorical figure. And my goal in writing the book was to see if anything would arise in trying to weave together these different strands. And what came out of it was handiwork. And just to give you a sort of sense of what those poems sound like, I'll read just two from the book. This is one of the crystalline Gematria poems. Hurt in salt, gray shine, of a wicked line whip, or after lit looted, all soot plain down, all scorn and acid let burn. And this is one of the lyrics, History of Song. I often felt as if I were a nightshirt full of wrens, a standing out thing ready to tear the skin from my body and completely reveal myself. This is two thoughts at once. The first, my mother refuses to tell me I am pretty because she believes in my mind. And the second, I am allowed to continue my lessons even though a pack of wolves has been seen in the forest. I imagine my music draws them to me. Long dark sound, a saw that has ground its teeth to a razor's fineness. These are words I did not understand when I learned them, a combination tone. Yes, 
There is a third set of tracks that crosses here. My body is present, my heart already flown. Soon I become someone else, which is just like becoming no one. An additional recent uh, project that has taken me deeper into the realms of constraint and materiality is Excess Exhibit, which is another collaborative work created with the performance artist and poet Kate Durbin in Los Angeles. Um, so Kate and I began this project with a number of constraints, including types of words to begin and end each lines, uh, ways in which we were going to write inspired by images, like the ones you see here using ekphrasis, to give ourselves a liberty to write whatever it was that we wanted in response to these images. What we found was that we had a mutual fascination with the idea of excess, with mutation, with overgrowth, which is an important theme in both of our first manuscripts. So the project emerged from this mutual fascination, and in addition from our desire to each try on the other person's poetics. While I tend to be a language-obsessed poet, Kate tends to be a very explicit poet, both in terms of her subject matter and in terms of her stylistic choices. So we wanted to have this interplay between the two different styles and to see what would emerge if two such different poets were to collaborate. So the images that we chose here, just to give you a sense of this, the sort of the range of the scope, uh, on the upper left you have Carly Fernandez's Rat with Grapes, which has this image of grapes growing out of a uh, taxidermied rat. And in the bottom right-hand corner you have uh, one of shoplifters' woven hair pieces. What we ended up with is a text that exceeds both of our voices. It's, it's a kind of a third text in the vein of the idea of the third mind that uh, Brian Geisen and William Burroughs suggested occurs when two writers collaborate. The thing that emerges is, is something different than either writer. Um, in order to save time, rather than playing this video of Kate and I reading from the text, I'll just tell you a little bit about the way that the, the, the poems work. We took turns writing lines, and then as we revised, we stripped away a lot of the layers that um, helped to sort of buttress the project in the beginning. So a lot of the constraints fell away, like a useless corset. And uh, what we ended up with was this oracular voice that explores ideas of hybridity, mutation, overgrowth, and overabundance. And the way the poems work on the page, they exist in multiple states, <clears throat> so that you have a, a poem that appears on the page, then a second poem appears behind it so that they are juxtaposed, and one of them recedes into the background, allowing the other one to come to the fore. What happens is the poem that was already there has to make room for the new poem. So it disperses, and the new words find places to fit in within that poem. Then, in order to move forward, the old poem flies out, the new poem then becomes an entity by itself, and the process continues, with new poems continuing to enter, continuing to displace the previous text. So it's, it's, a, it's a work that is very much about evolution. And uh, as part of our desire to have this kind of mutational effect, we collaborated with the visual artist Zach Klein, who created a series of drawings that appear on the facing pages of the book that appear to grow and mutate and extend over the margin into the text side of the page. Likewise, the text is also in the process of moving over to the left side of the page. And this animation will just show you a vague sense of how this animation plays out. It's like a flipbook as the reader pages through the text. The image grows, mutates, and language and image merge in this kind of ecstatic form. Excess Exhibit is a kind of differential text, and we're lucky in that our publisher, ZG Press, is going to, to issue it in a series of different forms. So there will be a traditional print book, um, there will also be an ebook, and then there's this series of performances in which Kate and I take on the persona who speaks these poems into being. Um, and each of these images comes from a different uh, time in which one of the poems or several of the poems appeared in print. These are the author photos that go along with them. So she's a, she's a mutating, post-human, uh, somewhat 
transgendered figure um, who can take on anything from a kind of um, deer nymph, which you see on the left, to, uh, and also, of course, there's a little Harajuku element, to, on the right, our Marie Antoinette mermaid cholas. So these uh, play with imagery that comes out of the poems themselves. And here's a sort of mock-up to show you a vague concept of what the ebook might look like. So one text opens up to allow the new text in, then recedes to allow the next text to show up. Our uh, thought for this project is that if we have the, uh, an ebook uh, form of it, it should also have an interactive component. And since it's a, a sort of potential text in the tradition of Ulipo, in which because it has this helical structure, could potentially be recombined in a number of different ways, why not allow the reader to experience this uh, helical restructuring and uh, sort of spin the text out of control and see what new texts emerge. So our goal would be to have something like that at our readings where readers can be generating new texts for us to read. Uh, as you can see here, more images of Tom Phillips' Humument, which was released as an iPad app. One of the things that I really love about that app is that it has this oracle function in which when you spin a dial, two different pages of the book combine to tell your fortune. And uh, this uh, Phillips book is already a differential text, but the fact that he then um, allows the reader to enter into the space of the text really excites me. And I'm interested through all of these sort of material poetic practices in opening up the text to make space for the reader. So to that end, between page and screen, which is my most recent project created in collaboration with the Flash developer Brad Baus, is my attempt to create a text that both pays homage to the uh, print media that I am steeped in and that I love, while at the same time exploring the correlation between page and screen-based reading in an era in which we are more and more often looking at books in screen formats. So the images you see here are images of the book itself. I have a couple of copies with me to show you. Uh, as you can see from the image on the left, it is a blind printed cover, which means it's letterpress printed without ink so that there's just an impression. And the cover says the title of the book between page and screen. It's hand bound in an edition of 12 and letterpress printed. And it looks like this, like a, like a white square that's very minimal and inside contains only these minimal images. It's very much in the tradition of the fine art book or the artist book. It's printed on fine press paper. It cost me a lot of money to produce, which is why there are only 12. Um, and it's time consuming, of course, to bind. And it's a book of poems. But the poems themselves are not visible unless the reader has the correct tools to view them. So my inspiration in the realm of artist books, as I mentioned, is Joanna Drucker. This quote from her encapsulates my feeling about what it means to create an artist book, that an artist book is a book that creates a very close dialogue between its form and its content, and that there must be a reason for it to exist as a book, or it sort of fails in its project. And these are some images of Diderot's books that give you a sense of the, the lineage within which this book takes place. So let me uh, show you how it works. Between page and screen is an exploration of the space between the page and the screen, where text can exist in a realm that is uh, neither nor, and yet both. How can we uh, think about the relationship between the page and the screen while not, um, say, privileging one above the other? So the reader who has a copy of Between Page and Screen is directed on the first page to find the words visit betweenpageandscreen.com. They go to this website, Between Page and Screen, and are prompted to grant access to their webcam. And they see themselves. So it's important to me that the reader actually have an experience of seeing themselves interacting with the book. They're then prompted to do something. 
display a marker to the camera. And when you do, the poems appear. These poems that don't exist in either place, neither on the page nor on the screen, but only in this in-between space where you have to have both technologies. And of course, the book itself is a technology. We just tend not to think of it that way. But before we had books, we had scrolls. Before we had scrolls, we had the oral tradition. And of course, we continue to have orally transmitted poetry. Um, but we don't tend to think about the actual materiality of the book. And in fact, it is a structure that bears some thinking about. The poems within the book explore the relationship between page and screen through these love letters between P and S, who are interested in laying out the boundaries of their relationship. This is the first poem. Dear S, I fast, I fasten to become compact, but listen, that's only part your impact. I always wanted to fit a need. It's my character to pin, impinge, a twinge of jealousy, that fang tattoo. Last night on the patio, poco a poco, a patois between us, unseemly and peasant, pleasant. Let's spread out the pent-up moment, pentimento memento, a pact. Our stories spinto, no more Esperanto. So P clearly is the one who really wants to know what's happening, and S, is, I'm, yeah, and S is the more elusive. Interspersed between these epistles are poems that reference the history of concrete poetry, which of course uh, has a very strong connection to the materiality of language. This poem, Spin, Pin, Into Spinto, makes reference to both music, the spinto, and to the act of pinning, which is what P was talking about in that last poem. Or uh, affixing. The reason that the language of uh, pinning and affixing even comes up has to do with the etymology of the words page and screen, which as you can see from throughout the poems that I've read today, I'm fascinated with etymology and the relationship between words. So the uh, Indo-European word root for, root for page comes from to a word that means to fasten, from the Old English and Germanic to join closely or fit. From this word, a number of words about connection descend. Pact, peace, appease, pacify, fang, paul, pole, travel, from the Latin palis, and uh, pageant, etc. So hence, this uh, desire to pin. S is a little less committal. Dear P, I take your point. I didn't mean to cut, but it's my stripe, my type. I'd rather shear than share. I wear a scarf to hide my scars. My scabs have scabs. My heart's a shard. I am that scaramouche. I like a joust. My tattoo says, keep out. I prefer Aris to Arias, you've guessed. A bard of scabbards, a chorus of quiras. Our nocturnal skirmish was a junto. Just that. S. So although this is a text-based project and very much about the literary qualities of the text, there's, uh, there are references to music and sound throughout in order to allude to the history of poetry as not simply a material form, but also an auditory form. And they're poems that are meant to be read. So to tell you a little bit about screen, uh, its Indo-European word root comes from to cut from the Old English and Old High German. It also has a word root that means to shine. So from this, we get a number of words about protection. Scabbard, shield, skirmish, shear, share, score, carnage, carrion, charnel, and even charcuterie. So I was interested in this relationship between the page, the fastening, right? and the screen, which has this shining etymology, and also this act of cutting. Screen seems to be the aggressor here. And uh, it would be pretty easy to create a narrative in which the screen cuts through the page and supersedes it, and, uh, and we're left in the future of digital literature. But for me, I'm so deeply invested in the materiality of the page and uh, you know, the beauty of print that I, I didn't want there to be any um, agonism between them. 
So in fact, there is an act of sharing in the shearing. And works like this one clearly reference the uh, anagrammatic play characteristic of a lot of um, mid-century concrete poetry. Dear S, you Blanche, I didn't mean to impale you with my pin, my origins to join, to stake a claim, but that root, palis, leads both ways, to palisade and pull, but also travel and travail. I ply this narrow palette, not to palter, but to plate our letters, keeping pace. Let it lapse, scabs can be peeled back, packs. So once again, the language um, of etymology comes in here, but not all my etymologies are true etymologies. There are etymologies based on homophones and puns and uh, sort of dreamed relationships between words. Because I'm so invested also in Drucker's and, uh, and Hale's notion of the text being in close contact with its material form, it was important to me that the animations play with the content of the poems, that they actually have a correlation with what's happening here, that our use of augmented reality in this book would not simply be bells and whistles, but would be integral to the meaning of the text. So uh, images like this one, the spinning, pole, pale, pall, peel, are meant to uh, refer us back to earlier points in the text. We get additional letters about shearing and division and animation. Let's see, let's give you a good view of this one. So the, the values are actually the values of these stocks the day that I wrote this poem. And these are all actual stocks you can look them up and invest in. Here's our reference to the skirmish, scaramouche, scrimmage. Each of the animations in between the epistles has a different way of animating in and out of the page. So this one, if you cover up the marker, will recede into it. Well, I seem to be experiencing technical difficulties. I hope you'll bear with me. Oh, there it was, and then it was gone. So the poems continue to mine this territory, and in doing so, they lay out a narrative of an attempt to create definition. Of course, there isn't necessarily any final word that we can make on the relationship between the page and the screen. So of course, the, the book has to have an open ending. After a few curt letters to one another, when they, the poems actually change form from these prose poem epistles into couplets, there is a co-script, post-haste, post-face. There is no post-script. Sleep tight. Because, of course, there is, there is no after writing. Even in the digital realm, we are still invested in the scriptum. We are still invested in communicating through language. Even the most uh, um, experimental poetry, at, at base, we still have language in some form. Even if it's just scattered S's and P's, even if it's just individual letters, language is the medium uh, as writers that we're using. So at least uh, as an open ending for this text, there's the suggestion that text itself continues between the page and the screen. And I'd like to invite anyone who's interested in playing with the book and seeing some of the other pages to come up here and, and play with it after the talk. And with that, I'll close and I'll open it up to questions. Thank you very much.
Amaranth, I'm interested in your in your grandmother's name. Yes. Uh, was that a stage name? No, uh, that was her. Well, her name was Rina, but when she was uh, in Poland, she's from uh, Lwów. It was Renia. And Berliner comes. Oh, Berliner is her married name. She performed as Schoenthal. And what did, what kind of things did she do? Uh, she sang opera. She, for a while, sang um, for the Histadrut organization, which was sort of a... They put on basically patriotic uh, shows for um, people who were from... Uh, Jews who were sort of feeling displaced. It was like a, you know, a way of sort of building camaraderie. So she, she would sing like traditional Jewish folk songs. Yeah. She was trained in opera. Uh, I just was interested if you could say a bit more about the relationship between constraint-based writing and materiality um, on the one hand, and then ephemerality and materiality on the other hand, which struck me in two different ways in the talk. One with the technical difficulty, right? Because it seems like the materiality actually has a problem in that moment mm -hmm. um, uh, in which the digital becomes somewhat more ephemeral. Um, but also in terms of the vocal modulations that you did between the way you talk about the talk and the way you read poetry seemed like a sort of version of a kind of another ephemeral materiality that we don't always have access to. So, Well, to, to reference, or let's go to your first question, the relationship between constraint and materiality, which is... A, uh, a good question, and I think that I may not have laid it out clearly enough, but my sense is that in working in, uh, in constraints, like, say, the Ulipo constraint n plus 7, in which any noun in a given text is replaced with a noun that appears seven places later in the dictionary, in doing so, you're treating language as a field of information. Basically, language, in my mind, becomes data and is swap-outable. And in doing that, we begin to look at language as a material medium itself, rather than as words that have a fixed form of signification. I think it, it just sort of troubles our ideas of what signification might mean. And I think your second question about ephemerality is also really intriguing. I'm very aware of my performance affect and um, there is like poetry voice that you hear at poetry readings, which I'm mortified about doing, but apparently I do do it. Oh, no, I'm <laughs> more curious about it. Does it seem like there's a materiality being evoked there? Um, uh, yeah, there's, there, the... there's a difference in your voice. Don't be mortified. <laughs> well, clearly there is an aspect of performance to this work, and uh, I am very interested in what changes in these different modalities in which we experience the poems. So how, how Kate's poems... Uh, with me are different on the page versus when we are together, like standing in a museum back to back with our arms linked, pretending to be conjoined twins. It's a, it is a very different experience of the poems. So I guess we could think about ephemerality in that way. When it's a performance, it is limited. It, um, unless there is sort of a document to uh, create an artifact of it, it is a, a, of limited duration and it is going to be performed differently by us each time. Uh, as good as we get at responding to one another's voices, uh, it is always going to be different. So it could be ephemeral, ephemeral in that way. Was there another aspect of the question? Uh, just the ephemerality here. Like, oh, in terms of... me to talk into this. I was just yeah. oh. <laughs> uh, That the technical difficulty actually points to something that seems to be built into the digital materiality, right? So, like, of course, books vanish and decay and are ephemeral in some sense. Um, but there's also an intensified, um, potentially intensified ephemerality built into the digital, right? Mm -hmm. So that, like, say there's an apocalypse and all we have left is your book, right? Um, I, I don't mean it quite so, but like a massive technical difficulty at some level, right? right? Um, there is a sense in which, um, even without that, that moment of technical difficulty produces a kind of 
ephemeral materiality, right? Do you see what I mean? That like there's a disappearing quality too mm -hmm. to the space between. That's all. So maybe I've answered my own question. Well, I think <laughs> I think that another productive way to to mine that terrain is to think about the way uh, ephemerality as it relates to spectrality and the kind of ghostliness of the text, which clearly this is drawing on and and. For me, in my uh, scholarly work, looking at the relationship of poets to writing technologies, those writing technologies for them in many cases become ways of um, capturing inspiration. Because, of course, the images of the poet writing at his or her desk and the muse somehow whispering in his or her ear. And for the writers that I look at in modernism who are writing in the midst of two really massive wars that really shook up their sense of who they were and what the world was, uh, the idea of a muse sitting near them and whispering wasn't really tenable. Um, so the machine becomes a way of accessing a different kind of muse to draw words out of the ether. So in some ways, creating, uh, finding a way to capture the ephemeral um, and connect it to the page in some way. Um, I was just wondering how the pictures in your work between page and screen, um, like if the poems encode the pattern, or yeah, like what the system is. The uh, images that you see on the page are predetermined. The uh, so these shapes are basically grids that uh, the camera vision can. Um, distill into a single black or white image. And it has a series of patterns that it can recognize. By it, I mean the software flash. Um, and when the camera finds a pattern that it recognizes, it plays the corresponding animation. There isn't an actual planned connection between what image was used for which one. But of course, in retrospect, when I go through the book, I do see a connection between them. And you know that's clearly poetic license. Um, but uh, they, but they do each differ from one another in order that the software is able to differentiate them in some way. So I think there, the initial series from when this augmented reality software was ported into Flash consisted of maybe twelve. Um, there was a limited number, so uh, Brad created adi additional ones that did not previously exist in order to encode the rest of the poems. Amrith, I'm um, interested in your collection about your grandmother and mm -hmm. trauma, and also um, Joe's question about materiality. And I'm wondering, because um, you were talking about how language, you see it as data that can be switched in and out, right? And so I'm thinking about it in terms of, you know, with um, modernization under Nazi Germany, where everything became very uh, mechanized and um, efficient, mm -hmm. right? And it was kind of the totality of what machines could do, and I'm wondering how you, um, how that informs the way that you're thinking about trauma and language. The the relationship is a complex one, and one that I have been continuing to refine. But part of my, I guess I didn't fully explain the way that some of the texts in in the book work is that they're writings through of my grandmother's stories, where I've used a constraint. Um, called diastic reading that Jackson Maclow developed to select out certain words from the text and create basically uh, f phrases that you know can kind of retell the story. Taking that initial step helped me get into the text, but the resulting text still kind of scared me in terms of how deeply personal they were. So I added an additional constraint on top of that, which is the elipo constraint of translating from one language into the same language. And I then translated these excerpts from my grandmother's English into my own English. Um, and in doing that, I recognized that this is an act of um, an additional act of trauma to which I'm subjecting the source text. Um, and in doing so, I'm sort of placing myself in the lineage of having um, having an indebtedness to the victims of this trauma. The way that I uh, visualize this on the page is by placing the uh, translated phrases in brackets. And the visual brackets are meant to also correspond with my grandmother's experience of being in hiding. 
um, and you know what it was like to have to live in a sub basement and uh, and experience actual physical embodied entrapment. Um, so. I guess the, the most that I can say is that I'm, I'm grappling with that in the work and thinking about the ways in which the writer who is attempting to write through and uh, not speak for but speak with the victims of trauma can't ever really extract his or herself from, uh, from this complex that surrounds torturer and victim. Um, and for that reason, the hand poems also implicate me as a writer in the act of um, manipulation. Essentially, I mean, manipulation is a term that brings the hand into focus. It's an act that originates in the hand. Um, so it's something that I'm continuing to think through, and I appreciate the, the connection that you're making with Germany. For between page and screen, do you imagine the text that's stored on the site as kind of like a book, how it's printed is not going to change unless you make another revision, or something that you might change in the future? Like, how do you think of that text? It's a, it's a really interesting situation to be in, and I'm glad that you raised this question, because the book as an artifact, you're right any number of poems could appear on these pages. Now that the software exists, we could go in and change the text completely. And I rather like that idea in the same way that Tom Phillips, with his Humument, he continues to buy copies of Malik's book, right? And every time he buys one, he continues to rework the pages, painting over them, collaging and drawing, with the goal that eventually the book will replace itself. So every time the book is released, 20 or so pages have been substituted with new revisions of these pages. So that could be a fun way of thinking about the future of between page and screen, that maybe the poems continue to replace themselves over time such that the book is differential to the nth degree, that um, this iteration of between page and screen has maybe, as Joel suggested, an ephemeral quality and will only be here as long as we want it to be here. This is a question about availability. If there are 12 copies of the real text between page, the book text of between page and screen, does that mean that you're limited to 12 readers if, unless you, you perform the piece? It, yeah, it's a really problematic situation. Right now, um, we are limited to uh, either 12 readers or actually what we've been limited to is gallery installations. So uh, at any given installation, and we've done several and have a few planned, there can be up to, a, you know, there can be hundreds of visitors who get to see the book. But my goal is much wider dissemination. That's the reason that this is programmed in Flash, so that anyone with a webcam can do this at home and read this book. Because normally augmented reality, save for the kind that exists on our cell phones and that, you know, tells us where the hot restaurants are nearby, um, this type of augmented reality is mostly experienced in VR environments with helmets and masks. Um, so the goal was to make this accessible. And what I really would like would be to find a publisher who's, who can help me get this book out there in a, in a wider form. Um, and it's, I think that one of the things that might have to be left behind is the sort of obsessive materiality of it. Because having it be a fine press book uh, makes it expensive. And it shouldn't be. It should be inexpensive. Um, it just needs to be on sturdy stock so that the pages can open flat and the animations can be triggered. Um, but other than that, constraint, uh, if, there were, if I can find a publisher who's ready to take it on, I really would love to get the work out there at a wider scope. Of course, it can just be pirated. It certainly um, can. And uh, I mean, I got my copy off BitTorrent. You didn't probably, decompile the flash file? You probably, you probably picked up a virus at the same time. Uh, pursuing this argument that you're making about, about the, uh, uh, the, your willingness to turn it into a, not a fine press book if you can get uh, a, a larger number of copies published, uh, my question is, has to do with that. I mean, it, it's... Um, since the since the words since since the the content of the text is only animated uh, digitally and is 
the text itself, in, ironically, is the least material and the most ephemeral of the elements that go into it. Why is the book needed at all? Why, why, not, why not just distribute little t uh, single, single cardboard, uh, like the one you gave me when you first gave, gave your, your demonstration here at the beginning, right. which I took home and w w in one case had a, had a little uh, tab like that, and I, and I animated it on my... Why, why do we need the book? What, what, what contribution does the book, a fine book or not so fine a book, make... make to the experience of animating or in, or or enlivening or giving birth to these to these to these images. I think that the reason that that the project necessitates a book is that it's so intric intricately connected with the content that because the book itself is about bookness and what we recognize as a book, how we think of objects as books. Uh, we sort of need, even though I do, I do have these markers that are meant to be portable and sort of a takeaway for anyone who wants to try this at home, the experience of holding the book in your hands is an experience of seeing yourself, seeing the book, seeing no words, and then looking up and seeing words. There's this embodied experience that, the, that I want the reader to have. Um, this also connects with my scholarly work, which has to do with embodiment in this whole paradigm of writer's relationship with technologies. Um, but essentially, there is a material experience that a reader has when turning pages that reminds us this is an action that we only do with books. This is an experience that only happens with books, so that when I turn the page, and the animation uh, destroys, right? It flies away. So the text is there. And then when I turn the page, we are, I'm stuck on ephemerality now, Joel. It, its ephemerality becomes clear to us that it isn't there in any permanent way, the way we tend to think of texts on the printed page as permanent, but in fact can be quickly destroyed. So I think that this particular physical experience of holding the book is intricately connected with the message of the book about the, the parity between page and screen and the necessity for both, that books aren't going anywhere. I don't think. I think that, that books are going to be with us for a long time yet, despite the pervasiveness of screen media, despite the fact that I have an iPad and I love it. Um, I do think that, that many of us will still be using books and experiencing books. You're not convinced well, that... Somebody, this is not in some way, to, but, but intentionally, I guess. Well, I, have, I think I have two, but let me start with this one first. Um, could you revisit, would you mind revisiting what you said about Pierre Jory? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I, I'm familiar with his translations of Ceylon, and I, 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 I didn't quite grasp what you were intending to say about his work, his translation work. Uh, Rothenberg and Jory uh, work together on translations that they envision as um, essentially any translation being a new text of its own. In addition to providing us access to an original text, every translation is itself a new poem. So um, I can't think of what their most canonical example is, but... Um, Essentially, it's, it's a notion that an act of translation is not really ever going to be an exact rendering of a source, but in fact takes uh, inspiration from the source and creates something new. The other major influence on that is the Brazilian concrete poet's notion of transcreation, um, which has a similar resonance that... It's always something new. My, I, have a, I have a second question. It's, it's a, do you think about margins? Um, and I, I'm, uh, language poets, or that I know at least, and some friends of language poets, I'm thinking of Kathleen Frazier, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, talk a lot about what exists in the margins, mm -hmm. as in not printed or the notes for the poem. Um, and I wonder if you think about that or, or in, in your work. I, I think about it a lot in terms of visual work. Um, it's something that um, in, in uh, sort of passing blog posts, someone referred to between page and screen as 
uh, playing in the, in the marginal interstices of language. And I can kind of see that as um, both the, this being a marginal writing practice in terms of uh, available text, but then also being a between space or a space uh, you know, for contemplation, a space um, sort of off-centered, so to speak. And I guess many of my practices, at least these recent ones, are more um, meditative in the way that you're talking about, that the margin is a space reserved for this kind of working through the material of the source, right? So a translation, uh, the way I've been thinking about it, is an act of close reading of a source text so that our translations, say, of Brafort provide what amounts to a kind of literal translation, but necessitate this second poem that is like a close reading of the first poem in some cases, that it's, it's a way of, um, of exercising those elements of the text that it just didn't seem like there was another way to get out. I think I, I hadn't thought about it in terms of marginality, but that concept makes a lot of sense to me. It seems to describe the terrain mm -hmm. um, it, for, for both page and screen. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It's very useful. Can you talk a bit more about um, your process of collaboration for the excess exhibit? Like, were you collaborating? Like, were you working side to side or like on your own and then got together? Because it was not yeah. kind of clear like how the process worked. I went through it pretty quickly. Um, the process was that we were uh, separated. Um, and we had a shared document where we placed all the images and where we wrote out our constraints and who was going to start which poem and who was going to end which poem. And we each would go to that Google document on a regular basis and contribute our lines, um, somewhat, like an, somewhat like an exquisite corpse. Yet in some cases we, wrote, we each wrote a poem in advance and then we interleaved them. We had this constraint um, that the lines would begin with prepositions and end with infinitives, thinking that somehow this would create a kind of connective tissue between them. And in fact, it ended up being really redundant. So when we interleaved them, we realized that there was too much happening, too many infinitives, too many prepositions. And a lot of that got scaled back in the poems. So we revised them together over the phone and over Skype. Um, and uh, it, it was a very digital process, actually. So it's been like she was in L.A. and you were in Boston. It's kind of like collaboration, long-distance collaboration. Very long distance, yeah. And it's, at one point she was in uh, England, and at one point I was in Paris, and we were, you know, stealing time for the project wherever we could. Kate's also very busy. She runs a website called Gaga Stigmata that is... Um, essays about Lady Gaga from, you know, a, a number of different perspectives, gender studies, pop culture, but um, yeah, so she's very busy with Gaga Stigmata. Uh, but it's been, a, it's been a real joy to work with her, and it has really expanded my own writing. Well, if we are done with the questions, let's thank Amrith Borsak once more for this presentation. <clears throat> And um, I'd encourage you to take her up on her invitation. This, this website is it's permanent. It's going to be there. But that object over there, that very ephemeral you know, packet of paper that's bound together, this is your chance right here. So you should go and uh, manipulate it and see how to operate it, how to read it in this context. Thanks very much. <laughs>